And Father, as we consider these, uh, these human events and these human battles, we thank you that you own history. And we thank you that the earth is your footstool. And we thank you that you are in absolute charge of everything that goes on on this globe and in the universe and outside of the universe. Uh, you have always been. You have never not existed. We can't even conceive of such a thing. Where did you come from? We don't know. You didn't come from anywhere. You've always been. That, that just stretches our minds. Be, be, just we, we can't fathom it. But that's what makes you God. And that, that is what makes you different than us. Are we concerned? Yes, we're concerned. But at the same time as we are concerned, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are working and that you have a plan and that your plan will not be thwarted and your plan will not be frustrated. You sovereignly place men in positions. You assign each of us to our post. And we would pray for those who are godly men that you have placed and assigned to certain positions in our government. You've put them there for a reason as you put Daniel there for a reason. We pray that you would give them great wisdom. We pray that you would give them a great sense of dependency upon you. We pray that they would not read polls. We pray that they would listen to you and to your word and that they would do what is right and they would not worry about being reelected. We pray that they would honor you, and if they will honor you, you will honor them. Now, that's not only true for them, it's true for us. We, li we live in an age where there is tremendous pressure to be uh, accepted, and there is tremendous pressure to have the approval of those around us. May we treasure your approval more than anything else. We're studying, Lord, the decline of this nation. And in the midst of studying this, we're watching our own decline. And it concerns us deeply. As we study this, may we watch over our lives carefully so that we do not decline. So that our hearts do not turn cold. So that we do not become hard. But that we always maintain that tender spirit before you and that teachable spirit and that we don't fight you but that we honor you and we obey you and we love you even as we fall short because we're men but we keep coming back because your grace and your mercy can never be exhausted and that amazes us so teach us tonight your word is very very sharp uh, your word gives us life, and that's why we're here. We ask that this would not be wasted time, but that it would be significant as you do your work in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. We mentioned last week that the book of Judges is the Frank Sinatra of the Old Testament because in the book of Judges, they did it their way. 
That was uh, Sinatra's signature song, I Did It My Way. Well, in the book of Judges, for about uh, 300 years, a little more than 300 years, uh, the nation was in a downward spiral because they all decided they were going to do it their way instead of God's way. The book ends with the uh, very sad signature that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when every man does what is right in his own eyes, you get a big problem. Uh, when every man does what's right in his own eyes, he's looking out for number one. When every man does what's right in his own eyes, he's not concerned about anyone else other than himself. So when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, there's not a whole lot of camaraderie. There's not a whole lot of unity. There's not a whole lot of trust. It's, uh, it's hard to have a good nation when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's hard to have a good family when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Uh, it's hard to have a good business when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That's not how you live life. Uh, it's, it's no surprise as we study Judges, and, and as we looked at Judges chapter 2, it records that downward spiral of the nation. Um, that's what happens when everyone does what's right in his own eyes. I was handed this, and it's applicable to our study. Can you imagine working for a company that has a little more than 500 employees and has the following statistics? 29 have been accused of spousal abuse. Seven have been arrested for fraud. 19 have been accused of writing bad checks for real. 117 have directly or indirectly bankrupted at least two businesses. Three have done time for assault. 71 cannot get a credit card due to bad credit. 14 have been arrested on drug-related charges. Eight have been arrested for shoplifting. 21 are currently defendants in lawsuits. 84 have been arrested for drunk driving in the last year. Can you guess which organization this is? The answer is it's the 535 members of the United States Congress. That concerns me a little bit. Because what you've got here, I mean, in some of those things, because you're a defendant in a lawsuit doesn't mean you're guilty. But uh, a number of those things draw great concern. Uh, you've, you've got some crooks here. You've got some people that are not living with integrity because they've, you know, what's always cracked me up is uh, how Congress will pass laws for all of us and then exempt themselves. You talk about a lack of integrity. It's remarkable, isn't it? Um, well, we could go all night on that, but hey. <laughs> Let's turn to Judges um, chapter 4 tonight. Israel would get in trouble. They would call out to the Lord. Now, why'd they get in trouble? Because they... For, they, they forsook the Lord, and they went after the other gods of the other people, the people which they should have driven out, but they didn't drive out. They didn't obey the Lord. So now these people are influencing them, and as these people are influencing them, they take up with their false gods, and there's a downward spiral that begins to happen in their lives, and all kinds of horrible things are happening in the culture. Uh, these other cultures basically are cultures of death. They practice uh, abortion, they practice infanticide, they throw their children into the fire to worship their false gods. This is affecting the people of Israel. And then God will allow these different other groups, these other ites, to then oppress. Now, 
God said to Israel in the book of Joshua, the previous book, he said, listen, when you take the land, if you'll follow me, and this is out of Deuteronomy 28, I'll bless you. I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'll make you the head instead of the tail. You will never be defeated in battle. That was the offer God made to them. They decided they wanted to do it their way, so as a result, instead of enjoying victory in battle, and instead of being the head, they're not the head, they're the tail, and they're oppressed. So things would get real bad, and then they would call out to the Lord. And then God would raise up a judge or a deliverer, and the Spirit of God would come upon this deliverer. One of them was Samson, who comes later. And, and will give them a great victory. And then they'll thank the Lord, and they're grateful for the Lord. And as long as that judge lives, to a degree, they follow the Lord. But when that judge dies, they start the downward spiral again. And this is the whole story of the book of Judges. Uh, every man does what's right in his own eyes. And see, when every man's doing what's right in his own eyes, instead of doing it God's way, you, what you have is basically you have insanity going on. I got to tell you this. I caught Rush for about 20 minutes this afternoon. And he was on it. <clears throat> you guys know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I knew you did. Um, he, uh, he, was, he, he was talking about a report that a CNN reporter had made when the Terry Schiavo uh, deal was going on. And this reporter was uh, doing a report on the uh, people protesting, the fact that she was uh, being murdered, that water and uh, food were not being given to her. And, and then as he was giving the report, he began to uh, talk historically about different uh, anti-abortion protesters who had actually shot abortion doctors. Now, none of those people had done that. But he, you know, there would have been three guys that have shot abortion doctors over the years. Well, he, 75% of his report with these people in the background who were holding Bibles and signs was about uh, three guys who went and killed. Now, let me tell you something. If you're pro-life, you don't shoot abortion doctors. Do you? I mean, if you're against someone taking the life of an unborn child, then why would you violate your old principle and take the life, you see? So if you're pro-life, be pro-life. Uh, so he takes, those, he takes those three examples and basically ties in those other people who are protesting the fact that this gal's feeding tube has been removed. Then, then, this same reporter is doing a report within the next week in Florida, only now there are some dolphins that have beached themselves. The same guy is given the same report and is showing these volunteers who are trying to save the life of these dolphins, and they are taking turns, I believe shifts of four hours each, holding these dolphins, keeping their blowholes out of the water, and in order to save their life and to keep these dolphins from killing themselves, they're inserting feeding tubes into the dolphins. That's insanity. Flat out insanity. And I'll guarantee you this. Those people, I mean, here's my guess. Here's my guess. If you had interviewed the people saving the dolphins, and ask them what they thought about the Shivo case. I can tell you what they'd think. And I can tell you what side they'd be on. 
because they're nuts. Because every man's doing was there's there's no truth, there's no law. You see. Uh, Jesus said uh, in Matthew five, he was talking about uh, the fact in Matthew six, don't be worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Your father, you know, all the, keep saying, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And he says, you're, you know, hey, look at the lilies of the field. Your father takes care of them. Look at the birds of the air. And then Jesus said, are they not more important than you? Did Jesus say that? He said, are you not more important than what? You guys follow me here? He was the TNIV. Yeah, right. No. Uh, Jesus is talking about the birds. Your father takes care of the birds. And then his whole point is, are you not more important than they are? And the answer is yes. Because human beings beings are made in the image of God and animals are not. Now, we take care of our animals. But human beings are more important because we bear the image of God and animals don't. So people are more important. But here you got a lot of people in the water keeping the blowholes open and putting a feeding tube in so these jumping dolphins can live. That's nuts. But it's where we are as a culture. So the book of Judges has a whole lot to say to us who are alive at this particular time in, in, uh, in God's plan. Amazing how relevant the scripture is, isn't it? It's just remarkable. So, uh, hey, God's not forgotten about us. He, know, he, he knows all this stuff. He knew it was going to happen. And guess what? He caused us to be born, and he's got us on the face of the earth. So we're here for a reason, guys. He's always got his men. What you need in a deal like this is you need men. You need men who will stand, and they'll stand on the word of God, and they're not intimidated, and they'll just tell the truth. And... Uh, so that's why we're here, and that's why we're alive, and that's why you exist. And that's why God has got to spread out all over, you know? He kind of spreads us out like uh, salt, kind of spreads us out like manure, perhaps. And uh, just puts us where he needs us. And you may be the only believer at your office. That's okay. That's okay. You're assigned to your post, and you just stand for the Lord, and you work hard to the glory of God. And when you get a shot, when you get an opportunity, you just... Say what, what the truth is, and you say it appropriately, but you're not intimidated, and that, that's, just, that's why we're alive, and that's why we're on the face of the earth. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? I mean, I think it is. And uh, they won't like you, and, and they'll, call, you know, they'll say you're this or that, and, uh, and you are. Uh, you know, you're a fundamentalist, or you're a Christian. Or... But hey, it's heating up, isn't it? There's room for every viewpoint in this country except the Word of God. You notice how, how, how the lines are really being drawn. You notice the hatred for the gospel. You notice the hatred for the things of God. I mean, it's interesting. So keep taking your vitamins and keep reading your Bible. And, uh, and we'll be fine. You know, the Lord's with us. Uh, we're, 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 we're in a battle. We're in a war. So this stuff in Judges 4 is really interesting. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of fly through this and draw some principles. And uh, I think it's got a lot to say to us. Then the sons of Israel, we're in verse 4. They, they, it, it, the, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now you had Ehud, who's, who's the guy in the previous chapter, beginning with verse 15. 
And uh, if you look at verse 30, after he did his work, uh, the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Then you've got another guy in verse 31 named Shamgar. And the Lord used him, but he doesn't get a lot of print. All right? But they had 80 years. But then in verse 4, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what they do. You know, this is the next chapter. They just keep screwing up. And the Lord, now this is interesting. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, this is great, Herosheth Hagoyim. Okay? Couldn't be Frisco. It couldn't be Plano. It has to be Herosheth Hagoyim. Uh, this Sisera is a bad guy. Um, I, I like the way uh, Warren Wearsby does this in his commentary. He basically uh, gives a cast of characters for this period in, in the life of Israel. And the cast of characters that we're going to read about in chapter 4 is, number one, Jabin. He's the king of Hazor in Canaan, and he's a tyrant. Then we're going to meet, in verse 4, if you'll notice, Deborah. Now, Deborah was a prophetess. The wife of Lepidoth was judging Israel at that time. So here we have a woman judge who's deliverer of Israel. Um, uh, then we're going to meet Barak, who is a reluctant Jewish general. Um, then later on, we'll, we'll meet a guy named Heber, who is a neighbor of, of theirs. We're going to meet a woman named J.L. And then, of course, kind of the invisible player here is Jehovah God, who Wearsby says is in charge of wars and weather. And he is. And that'll play into this story. Uh, so the sons of Israel are in trouble again. And it says, now Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim, rather. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I'll tell you what's great about going to Israel. When you go to Israel, you can go to this place. You can go to Mount Tabor, you can see it, you read the passage, and you see the whole battle laid out for you. That's the beauty. That's the glory. I always say if it comes down to sending your kids to college or going to Israel, go to Israel. You know, let your kids figure out how to get through. I mean, let me tell you something. When you go to Israel and you're there about seven days, ten days, the Bible, it just, it's, it's, like, it's like going from black and white to, to technicolor. It's like going for, what's the new TV thing? What do they call that? High, high death, the plasma thing, you know? I remember reading about those, and I thought, what a, I mean, why would anybody want one of those? And then I walked into Best Buy one day, and I thought, I really need one of those. <laughs> yeah, you don't need it, but I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? it it's, it it's like going from a, a silent movie. When you go to Israel, and you're able to see the land, it's like going from a silent movie in the 1920s to going to a plasma screen at Best Buy. You can just see it. You can picture it. You can imagine because you've been there. You're reading about this Mount Tabor. You know that's kind of a big cone sticking up in the middle of, of the north part of Israel. And this is where all this stuff happened. 
Now, now what's going on here is that, once again, they're being oppressed by, uh, by these guys in the north. And Jabin's the king, but he's really not a player. The player is this guy Sisera. He's the hard guy. He's the general. And oppressing the people, just, it's driving them. It's just, it's just killing them. Uh, so there's this Jewish general by the name of Barak. Now, you know what's really interesting to me? You've heard me quote Hegel before, the philosopher. Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. The remarkable thing to me as you read the Old Testament is we're reading Old Testament history that happened 3,000 years ago, but the same stuff is being played out today. You, you've, got these, you've got these surrounding nations. They hate their guts. Um, oh, that's what Israel's got today. Interestingly enough, there's a military general here named Barak. Not too many years ago, Israel had a prime minister by the name of Barak who was a military hero from the Six-Day War in 67. And he was so sick and tired of war that he just, you know, and terrorists and all this, he's just sick and tired of it. So what's he want? He wants peace. So if you remember, uh, Clinton's trying to figure out some kind of legacy. You know, he needs to show something for eight years of whatever it was he did. And so he gets uh, Barack and he gets, uh, who's the other guy? Uh, uh, Arafat. He gets these guys together. And he's going to broker a peace. And he gets them to Camp David and the whole thing. Now, amazingly, here's what Barack, who so desperately wanted peace, here's what Barack put on the table. Uh, and the whole thing is, is that the Palestinians want a, they want a homeland, right? They want a Palestinian homeland. Now, if you know anything about history, you know that uh, uh, in the early 1900s, um, the, the land of Israel was controlled by the Turks, by the Ottoman Empire. And what they basically did was they just came down. Israel used to be full of trees, just great forests. And they came in and basically cut down all the trees in Israel and just stripped the country. And they were using it for all, as they were building their empire, they would take the lumber of Israel. And uh, uh, so the Turks were in it. But after, and then the Turks aligned with the Germans in World War I. Well, then after World War I, they had this thing called the Balfour Declaration. And this guy, maybe you've heard of this guy named Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was basically responsible for creating the state of Israel. But he also, while he, while he did that, he wanted the homeland for the Jewish people, but he also wanted to create a homeland for the Palestinians. By the way, Palestinians are Arabs. And if you look at a map of Israel, Israel is this little tiny country about the size of Rhode Island, a little bigger than Rhode Island. But they are surrounded by all of these Arabs who have homelands. Uh, name some of the Arab states for me. Iran, Iraq, Iran, Iraq Syria. Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Somebody said Jordan. Interestingly enough, when they did the Balfour Declaration and they carved out a state for the people of Israel, they carved out a nation, they carved out a homeland for the people, the Palestinians. And you know what they called it? They called it Jordan. Jordan is the Palestinian homeland. But Arafat tried to overthrow Hussein. Is that the guy's name? King Hussein, yeah. And so he got the boot. So then he started yelling for a Palestinian homeland. So Clinton brokers his peace, and Barack is so desperate for peace. Barack, who's tired of the oppression and the wars and the terrorist bombings, Barack, you know what he puts on the table? I'll give you 90% of the land of Israel. Did you know that? I was over there when some of this was going on. 
and people are up in arms. He's going to give them 90%. Now, if, if you're working some kind of deal or contract, and you kind of know what you want, and they come back and offer you 90% of what you're after, you know, it might be a good idea to take that. That's a pretty darn good deal. Interestingly enough, uh, Arafat turned them down. Oh, by the way, they gave Arafat the Nobel Peace Prize. Peace Prize. You knew that, didn't you? Yeah, because they're idiots. That's exactly right. Um, that shows you their agenda. Interestingly enough, Arafat, while this was all going on, gave a speech in Oslo, and it was caught on videotape. And he's done this speech before, but he basically declared his real purpose was not to have a Palestinian homeland. His whole purpose was to drive the Jews out into the sea and exterminate them. Now, he said, why are you bringing all that up? Because that's exactly what's going on in the book of Judges here. And the same thing's still going on. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's still front-page stuff. So, you know... George Bush has got uh, Sharon at the ranch down in Crawford. Why? Because they're trying to fit, and he's talking about the West Bank and the settlement. It's still the land. It's still going on. Just amazing. So these guys are in trouble. And you got this guy named Barack, who's this military leader. Now, the nation of Israel was in bad shape right here because of the downward spiral. And when every man does what's right in his own eyes, there are consequences that accrue as a result of that. In, um, in, um, in the 60s, we had a moral earthquake that occurred in this country. I grew up in California, so I've been in quite a few earthquakes. Um, I've been in a lot of earthquakes. I remember being a freshman in college and waking up at about 5.30 in the morning. I was on the fourth floor, and I remember just watching my room. Just, I mean, I was just holding on and trying to stay in bed and just ride with it because I was just going. And the epicenter was about 40 miles north in the San Fernando Valley. You had all these overpasses crashed down. It's just pretty wild being an earthquake. Not a whole lot you can do. When Mary and I first got married, I didn't realize this, but she said to me one day, we'd married about a year, and we were living in California. She said, uh, we, were, we had gone in the Sears or something. I forget what we were doing. On the way out, she said, I, I've noticed that uh, you always do the same thing when you walk into a big building. I said, what? What are you talking about? She said, you, you always look for the exits, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. I didn't even realize it. She said, I've just watched you. You always know where the exits are. She said, that's because of earthquakes? I said, that's because of earthquakes. When Rachel was about three months old, uh, she was in her high chair, and um, I'm feeding her, and Mary's doing something in the other room, and all of a sudden, I felt this earthquake. And before you knew it, I just had Rachel up, took the sliding door, and I went right outside. And, then, and I went, Mary! <laughs> it's a true story. You know, uh, earthquakes are serious business, and uh, they're very uncomfortable to be in earthquakes. But in the 60s, there was a, there was a spiritual earthquake that occurred. Uh, usually after you have an earthquake, you have aftershocks that last, you know, maybe 24 hours, sometimes a couple of days. 
But see, this earthquake that hit in the 60s, we're still feeling the aftershocks. Usually aftershocks diminish. The aftershocks from the earthquake of the 60s are getting stronger. And what I'm talking about is up until the 60s, the vast majority of Americans believed in moral absolutes. Did I talk about this last week? Okay. A couple weeks ago I talked about this? Okay. Well, you're going to get it again. <laughs> and what happened was everybody believed in moral absolutes, most people. Alan Bloom's book, Closing the American Mind. But then in the 60s, we started this moral relativism thing. And so moral relativism teaches that there is no absolute truth. Basically, it teaches every man can do what's right in his own eyes. We kind of got a thing going on right now about World War II. We're very appreciative of those who served in World War II. A lot of 19-year-old kids died on D-Day in Normandy. A lot of them died, spilled their blood. Why? They spilled their blood so that 20 years later, uh, some dope-smoking kid with long hair from a rich family who had everything he needed uh, could go burn an American flag. Now, you can do that in this nation. Because we have certain freedom. We have freedom of speech. Now, you go do that in Cuba, they'll shoot you between the eyes. Or you do go do that in most nations, and they'll just, they'll, just, they'll just cut you down. But see, here, we've got certain freedoms. Why do we have the freedoms? Because somebody died for those freedoms, and those freedoms came from somewhere, and they came from the Scriptures. Now, the question is, that was the 60s. Where are all those kids in the 60s that hook, took moral relativism, hook, line, and sinker, and believed it? Where are they? Well, you know where they are. They're everywhere. They're, they're, yeah, they're in Congress. They're, uh, you know, sometimes they're presidents, sometimes they're vice presidents. We got a bunch of them in the Senate. Uh, we got all kinds of judges that fit that category. So this is where we are. Now, we're grateful for World War II for the guys that died in World War II. Jesus said, no greater love is there than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. See, in order to lay down your life for somebody else, when you're 19 years old, you have to believe certain things. Uh, I'll tell you this, guys who lay down their lives at 18 or 19 on a, on a battlefield are not doing what's right in their own eyes. See, when you're doing what's right in your own eyes, you cover your butt. You cover your own tail. You don't care about anybody else. You're just looking. When, when every man's doing what's right in his own eyes, you're just looking out for number one. Wasn't that a best-selling book 25 years ago? Sure it was. Looking out for number one. Brilliant. You look out for number one, you know what? You're going to have a lousy marriage. In fact, you're not going to stay married because you're looking out for number one. If you look out for number one, your kids are going to grow up and resent you and basically hate your guts because you just looked out for yourself. You see, so you'll probably hook up with some young chick somewhere along your life and leave them and abandon them because you're a punk. You're just looking out for yourself. I'm kind of revved up tonight. <laughs> but see, this is what happens when guys just look out for themselves. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. You sure as heck don't go spill your blood on a beach somewhere, or you sure don't go to Iraq and die so that some woman's not raped in a rape room. You see? You got to have, there has to be some sense bigger than yourself in order to have a good nation, in order to have a good family, in order to have a good church. This downward spiral in the book of Judges, they're in trouble. Now, I want to I show you something here real interesting to me. When you have a downward spiral, uh, and every man does what's right in his own eyes, when every man's doing what's right in his own eyes, you know what? You, you start losing your manhood. 
You start losing your purpose as a man. You, you, start, you, you start to, you know, Rick Warren's written this book that's, that's sold, you know, 97 trillion copies this week. It's a joke. It sold 20 million. Purpose-driven life. And, uh, boy, a lot of people are picking that book up. A lot of unbelievers are picking that book up. Because people are looking for purpose. What's my purpose? Well, if you want to know your purpose, you don't start with yourself. You start with God. And that's why Rick, in that book, the very first sentence of the book says, it's not about you. Well, for a lot of people, that's, out, that's a flat-out revelation. They think it is about them. No, it's not about you. It's about God. And if you understand, want to understand why you're created and what your purpose is and why you were born, you've got to start with God. So to the degree that you do what's right in your own eyes, you're going you're gonna to miss your purpose as a man. Now, I want to show you something that's really interesting in this passage to me about Barak. They're in trouble. Deborah is ruling. She's the judge. A lot of Christian feminists get all excited about this, and they use Deborah as a basis for having women pastors. Um, this verse has nothing to do with pa women being pastors. In fact, it's sort of an indictment of where the nation was. Because you see, God has called men to lead the family, and God has called men to lead the church. A lot of people don't buy that today. But God's design is that men lead their families, not that women lead them. There's some good women leading families, and they're doing the work of two people because their husband's cut out on them. But God wants men to lead the family. God wants men to lead the church. That's why when you read the requirements for an elder in 1, Peter, uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, they're written to men. You've got masculine pronouns there. Uh, um, and you've got some other passages that are pretty clear. You didn't have women pastors in the early church. Uh, so they get on Deborah and they go, oh, see, well, no, they don't understand. This was a screwed up time. It's like the people, it, it's like the charismatic folks, the Pentecostal folks that go to the book of Corinthians and they just jump right into the verses on tongues and they completely ignore the context. The church at Corinth was screwed up. I mean, every chapter they're screwed up. They go from one problem to another problem to another, and all of a sudden, we get into the spiritual gifts, and oh yeah, we're supposed to do that. Wait a minute, they're screwed up. They're not even using the gifts correctly. That's the whole point. So don't use those guys as a benchmark. Don't use the book of Judges as a benchmark. These people were screwed up. I want you to see this. You got a godly woman named Deborah. She's judging in verse 5. In verse 6, she summons for Barak. She tells him to go and get 10,000 guys to mount an army because she wants him, look at verse 7, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and as many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give you into his hand. Now, that's basically what God has said. Uh, so here's the deal. Barak, listen, you're supposed to go get this guy, and you're supposed to go take this guy on. Now, Barak's got 10,000 guys. The problem is, is that this Sisera guy is, is commanding, in verse 7, it, it, it says, uh, with his chariots and his many troops, that's literally with his multitudes. This guy had a huge, huge army. Uh, this guy had, uh, if you look at verse 13, it says, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots. 
900 iron chariots. Nine, uh, hey, iron chariots were the latest technological advance in the world at this time. Uh, I mean, they were the Scud missiles. They were the, the Bradley fighting vehicles. They, the, the, you know, the tanks. They were the just, I mean, they were the ultimate. So he's got 10,000 guys. He's going against this army that was comprised of multitudes. They couldn't even number them. Plus, this army of multitudes has 900 iron chariots. Do you know how many chariots Israel had? Zero. So if you were part of the army of Israel, would you be a little concerned? Yeah, you would be concerned. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 17, go to your left. I want to show you something. You know, roughly three, four hundred years, you know, prior, before the period of Judges, at least the end of Judges, God gave some commands to the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel didn't exist yet. But see, that's not a problem for God because God knows the future. God always knows what's going to come down the pike. Things happen to us in our lives that shock us and surprise us. God's never shocked and God's never surprised because God knows all things. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God gives directions to the king of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 17, one of the things that he says is that he says uh, that, um, gosh, I'm missing it. I'm looking right at it. Oh, it's 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Uh, why did God not want them multiplying in horses? Because horses pulled a vehicle called a what? A chariot. See, 300 years before these guys were going to be in trouble against this multitudinous army, did God know that they were going to come up against 900 iron chariots? Did God know that? Yes. So before it ever happens, God says, guess what? I don't want you guys having chariots. A lot of times we get ourselves into trouble. We're surprised by the trouble. God is not surprised by your trouble. God has overseen all of your circumstances. He knew about them before he created you. He's not shocked. He's actually set them up because He's allowing you to walk into this situation because he wants to show you something great about himself if you'll trust him. This whole thing was lined up centuries before. Now, these guys are just showing up and punching in. They're scared to death. So Barak, Deborah says, the Lord says, hey, go take this sucker on, take 10,000 guys. This guy might have had a million in his army. He's got 900. How do you handle it? You can't defeat an iron chariot. They got iron axles. You, I mean, you, you just can't take these guys, and they've got no chariots. Now, you want to know the good news? The good news is that Barack obeyed, and they went and they fought this guy, and guess what happened? Shock of shock. Guess who won? Israel won. And they didn't have chariots. A lot of times, we'll look at our circumstances, we'll look at where we are, and we wonder why God has not given us something that he's given to other people. Lord, I don't have this, but other people, you've allowed to have this. Um, you know, it could, it, could, it could be all kinds of things. Maybe someone's got a good marriage, a friend of you, you don't have a good marriage. Maybe someone has a great relationship with their kids, you don't have that. Maybe someone has their health. You don't have your health. Maybe, I don't know. It can be all a legitimate thing, but you don't have it. 
in our lives, there's always going to be something that you're not going to have that other people are going to have. Because in that area, and, and, and it's like you can never get a grip on it, you can never quite fix it unless God comes through. Here's what I'm saying, guys. In every area of our life, we have a situation that's completely out of our control. And only God can fix it. And, and quite frankly, the odds are completely against you. It, it'll be that way in life. And that frustrates most of us because uh, we, we, like to see, we, we like to accomplish things. I, I, years ago, was down at Dallas Seminary, and they gave me a battery of personality tests. And uh, I, 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 I flunked all of them. It's tough not to have a personality. These per, not personality tests, but, you know, they, they tell you how you're wired and how you're driven. And this one particular instrument, they would kind of tell you your aptitude and what it is that drives you and... Here's what you are normally, here's, you are, here's what you are under stress, and here's what you, here is what you are when life's kind of normal and you're just, well, in all three areas, I was result-oriented. You know what that means? That means I want to accomplish things. I want to accomplish my goals, and I want to get them done. Now, you know what? A guy who wants to, is result-oriented is a control freak. I want to control things. And when, and when things don't go my way, guess what? I get upset, and I get frustrated, and I get angry, and I get irritable, and I get hard to live with just like some of you guys. And what I'm saying is, for guys like that, there's always going to be an area in our life where we can't get control. It's out of our control, and the circumstances are too big, and it'll never come together the way that you want it to come together. It might change. Those areas might change from time to time. But there's always going to be an area that God has to come through for you. That's where these guys are. So what happens is, they take these guys on. This is pretty wild stuff. They take these guys on, and they beat them. Uh, if you look at um, um, verse 15, Judges 4, the Lord, isn't that interesting? The Lord routed Sisera. It doesn't say that the army of Israel, this is the Lord. See, that's, that's the answer for us. Whatever it is you're up against, you still out of work, David? Right, the answer to that is the Lord. You're doing what you can do. You're putting out resumes. How long have you been out of work? year and a half. That's tough. And that's a pressure and it's a struggle. And how do I get out of this? And how long is this going to happen? And da, da, da. And, and, and you do all that you can do. But ultimately, you know what that comes down to? It comes down to the Lord. And he's already got something. And he's got the company. He's got the place. And he's got the time. But here you are. It's like your dog paddling trying to hang on. You see? But ultimately, when that's resolved and you do all you can do and pile resumes, it'll be the Lord. You're married, you're struggling, and you can't communicate. It's not, what do you need? You need the Lord. See, ultimately, it's the Lord. The Lord puts us in these positions, and he has to come through for us. We don't like being in these positions. We like being in control. We like checking off our goals, right? But see, we need to be in a place where we understand that we desperately need him. So what happens is, they knew they desperately needed him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and all his army, which with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots, and the army as follows Herosheth Hagoyim. There it is again. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera, remember Sisera? He's kind of the big chief general here. He's Rommel here. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. You say, who's that? Well, if you look at verse 11, you'll see what that's about, but I'm going to keep moving. 
For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Jael, this guy's wife, went out to meet Sisera. This guy's on the run and said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug or blanket. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. This guy, his whole outfit's been, you know, been cleaned up, massacred, and he's the only guy, and he's on the run. So he founds this guy. She says, come on in. He lays down, you know, puts a blanket, and he says to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk, gave him a drink, then she covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here, that you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. I love that understatement. So he died. <laughs> I guess he did die. <laughs> and he thought, nothing like this has ever entered my mind before. <laughs> and behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, J.L. came out to meet him. She comes out to this Israeli general and says, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And then the next verse. The hands of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And then in chapter 5, Deborah has this great song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And one of the things that you find out in chapter 5 is how they defeated this, this uh, great army with all their chariots. If you look at verse 20, verse 20 says that uh, the stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon, this river, swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Let me read to you what Weirdsby says here. This is good. Um, if I can find it. I got it right here, guys. It's the blue, not the red. Here we go. Sisera had organized an alliance of the Canaanite kings and the united forces with 900 chariots, met the Jewish army at Megiddo on the plain of Jezreel, and you can still visit there today. Since it was the dry season of the year, the charioteurs expected to annihilate the army of Israel, but God had other plans. He sent a tremendous rainstorm that turned the Kishon River into a raging torrent and the battlefield into a swamp. Now, if you've got a swamp, you don't want to be in an iron chariot because iron chariots, these weren't four-wheel drive chariots. They, they started sinking in the mud and in the quagmire. And the very thing they were trusting in led to their massacre. Isn't that amazing how God does that? God had other plans. He sent a tremendous rainstorm that turned the Kishon River into a raging torrent and the battlefield into a swamp. Catch this. A raindrop is a very fragile thing, but if you put enough of them together, you can defeat an army. And that is true. The army, of the, Lord trust, the army of Israel trusted the Lord to give them victory because this is what he had promised to do. So a phenomenal victory took place here. 
Now, I skipped a verse, and I want to show it to you. Because I want to show you the fact that what really happened here is that in a time of war, in a time of victory, can I tell you guys something? Once again, we're all screwed up in this nation. We, we, send, we, we send little high school homecoming queens into combat. Can you, believe, can you imagine those World War II guys doing that? In World War II, everybody was helping out. And the guys went off to war, and the gals are supporting, and are nurses, and are, you know, working in factories and making, you know, armaments and planes. And it's a team effort. Everybody, hey, we're, we're, our very lives are at stake. But we always felt that it was wrong to send women into battle, didn't we? We, we, we just couldn't imagine doing that. We, we felt it was... Uh, we just we thought it would be a, a shameful thing to send our women out to fight for us. We wouldn't want to. Uh, would you would you want um, your daughter involved in the Bataan Death March? No, you wouldn't. Um, but see, the untold story of what's going on in Iraq is the amount of our female soldiers who have been uh, wounded and and killed and uh, raped. Uh, you know what? That's a shameful thing. I don't know who's making the decisions on this, but I'll tell you something. Real men don't send women into combat. Real men don't send 19-year-old girls into combat. I'm not saying they can't play a support role, but I, I'm, I'm talking about a man letting... Does that, does that, does that bother you? What is that all about? I mean, men are supposed to protect women. I mean, if I hear a noise at 3 o'clock in the morning, I go, Mary, go down there and check that out, will you? <laughs> I don't do that. I go check it out. What kind of wuss are you to send some girl out there to fight for you? I mean, I'd really like to know who's doing this. I'd like to go down and see who's voting this. I'd like to know. I, I got it. Thanks. I'd like, I just like to know. Yeah they, yeah, they did. But that doesn't mean that you put. You know what's interesting here? Once again, I want to get back to this. When every man does what's right in his own eyes, he's going to look out for himself. You're not going to die for other people. Uh, there are implications to what we believe. And when a nation starts a downward spiral, we, we start losing our minds and we start going insane. Um, you know what God did here? God used two women to deliver the nation of Israel in battle. I want you to go back to Judges 4. She says, Deborah says to this guy, hey, I want you to go lead 10,000 guys and take these suckers on. She didn't say suckers, but, you know, that's, that's kind of the idea. I want you to note Barak's response in verse 8 because I didn't read it before. Here's what this guy says. Here's this great military guy. He says, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. That's a shameful thing. Can you imagine guys hitting the beach at Normandy and saying, Mommy, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Can I tell you something? Real men don't talk like that. What I want to throw out to you is that um, this guy was feminized. 
because he lived in a culture where every man did what was right in his own eyes. When men do what's right in their own eyes, what happens is masculinity falls away. Men don't take their appropriate positions of leadership, and they don't exercise courage, and they don't exercise sacrifice, and they don't, uh, they don't initiate, but men become passive. When I did the book King Me, I did a chapter on how to feminize your son. What is feminization? Feminization is not a feminacy. Feminization is not homosexuality. But feminization is the result of being raised primarily by women. And, what, and that's what we do in this culture. Young boys in this culture are raised primarily by, by women. We, we, we were all put in elementary school and we had women teachers. Women are well-meaning, wonderful women. But women do not understand little boys because they were never a little boy. They understand little girls. I think I told you, I got the note one day from a teacher. I'm very concerned about John because John, did she say he was disobedient? She didn't say that. Did, he, did she say John was disrespectful? She didn't say that. If she had said those things, I would have been on it. I'm very concerned about John because John won't sit still in class. Well, John's eight years old. And God didn't design eight-year-old boys to sit in class for eight hours a day. He designed little girls to do that. I mean, I'm just, little girl, public school elementary systems are designed for little girls. But little boys, are little boys supposed to be in a chair eight hours a day and not move? I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense because little boys and little girls are different. Little boys are supposed to climb up 40-foot oak trees and jump. <laughs> little boys are supposed to run around and get exhausted and do crazy things. And they don't pay a lot of attention because they got all the other kids, you know, because one day they're going to be leaders and they're made differently than little girls. But see, we're, we're too advanced to acknowledge that. So what do we do in the public school system? Well, he won't sit still. Oh, so what do we do? We drug them to make them like little girls. I've enjoyed being here at Stonebriar and teaching you guys. <laughs> this is my farewell message. No, it isn't. A feminized male, Stephen Clark says, is a man who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate to women. The feminized male can be normal as a male with no tendencies to reject being male and no tendencies towards homosexuality. And yet he can be so influenced by women or can have so identified himself with a world in which women dominate that many of his interests and traits are more womanly than manly. Compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. He will be much more gentle and handle situations in a soft way. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group. So a feminized, you know what a feminized guy does who's in leadership in the government? He takes a poll. That's what he does. Because he doesn't have the chumpin' guts to stand on principle. He's a feminized man. He needs the approval. Of, you don't need the approval of the group. You need the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need some men. They don't care if the whole world's against them. All they care is what the Lord Jesus thinks. So you can cut me up, rip my heart out. I'm not changing because I'm honoring him. And you may get hurt because they don't like guys that do that. They might braveheart you. You remember that? Put him on that chumping slab, you're going to draw and quarter that sucker. That's what they used to do to guys who wouldn't, who wouldn't compromise. 
They just do that in the Senate one time. I'm kidding. <laughs> feminized men will sometimes tend to relate by preference to women and other feminized or effeminate men, and he will sometimes have a difficult time with an all-male group. He will tend to fear women's emotions, and in his family and at work, he can be easily controlled by the possibility of women, his mother, his wife, or co-worker, having an emotional reaction. He will tend to idealize women, and if he is religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christians or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. A feminized man may have a character in which the traits of gentleness and quietness are stronger than the traits of aggressiveness and courage. Um, you know what? I like Deborah. You know why I like Deborah? Because, see, godly women encourage men to take their God-appointed roles. She wanted this guy to step up. Because if you look, where's my Bible? If you look, Barack says, if you go with me, Deborah, if you go with me, Mommy, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. Hey, wait a minute. Who's he serving? You know what he should have said? Lord, if you go with me, I'll go. If you, in fact, that's what Moses did say. Lord, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. And all I need to know is the Lord with me. If he's with me, I'm going. I'm not asking some gal to go with me. I'm saying, Lord, are you with me? What did Deborah say? She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Godly women encourage their men to take their appropriate positions. The last thing that, uh, what's his name said here? Clark. Feminized man may have character traits, uh, character in which the traits of gentleness and quietness are stronger than the traits of aggressiveness and courage. Hey, we've all been feminized in this culture to a degree. If you're sitting here thinking, gosh, I think I'm feminized. But you know what? It's okay because it can be changed like that. I mean, if you were raised primarily by women, why would you not be affected by women? See, this is why men need to be with their sons. This is why we need to do stuff. This is why the word with is so important. Men are with their sons. You're catching this. Um, we have feminine traits, masculine traits. Let's take tenderness and let's take gentleness. Are those good traits? They're great traits, aren't they? Um, gentleness is a good trait. You know what? Men need to learn how to be gentle. If you got kids, you need to learn how to be gentle. Uh, tenderness is a great trait. Tenderness to the Lord. Tenderness to your wife. Tenderness to your children. Great trait. Now, let me ask you about aggressiveness. Let me ask you about courage. Are those great traits? Can I tell you what we tend to do in Christianity? In Christianity, we tend to take tenderness and gentleness, and we tend to elevate those over aggressiveness and courage. And we say those are more spiritual traits. No, they're not. <sighs> Guys, masculinity is bringing to bear the appropriate trait at the appropriate time. That's what Jesus did. Could Jesus be gentle? Yes. Could Jesus be tender? Yes. Could Jesus be aggressive? 
Could Jesus be courageous? Yes. Jesus, uh, un, uh, contrary to what the artists have painted Jesus in the famous picture where he's kneeling in Gethsemane, Jesus did not have soft hands, and he didn't have manicures once a week. And Jesus didn't have a flawless complexion. And Jesus did not have um, gorgeous hair. You ever seen those pictures of Jesus? Jesus had hands with calluses because Jesus was raised in a carpenter's home. And he worked with his dad. And he didn't buy his wood at Home Depot. He cut his trees. He planed his lumber. He had forearms on him. Uh, he didn't look like a wuss. He didn't have a flawless complexion. Probably had some busted fingernails. Uh, so he went into the temple to clean it out. Nobody stood up to him. And he wasn't being tender and he wasn't being gentle. He was being courageous and aggressive because in that moment, it was the appropriate thing. That's masculinity. And he didn't ask his mommy to go with him. He just did the right thing. We're influenced by our culture. And, and again, so you say, well, Steve, maybe I've been a little feminized. It's no big deal. You just get as close to Christ as you can. And we learn from him how to be a man. We learn from him when to bring the appropriate trait to bear. We learn from him not to be passive. We learn from him to take action. We learn to wait on him. We, we just keep going to him. And, and see, when God starts doing a work in a nation, you know what God starts doing? He starts working among his men and maturing them. And uh, that's what this is all about. We're all in process, and he's growing us all. And uh, he's going to use every one of us. You guys encouraged? It's a great old song called Onward Christian Soldiers. So let's go run through that wall on our way out of here. <laughs> let's stand and we'll pray, okay? Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you that you invented masculinity. Thank you that you want men to be masculine. You want women to be feminine. Our culture is confused about those two things. You're not confused. And as we know you and know your word, we're not confused either. Give us balance in our lives. Too oftentimes, we're aggressive when we need to be kind. Now, that needs to change. And as we submit to you, that will change. Encourage us to be men in the places that you've assigned us. And we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.